We're in the Old Testament, the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 21. And as we come to chapter 21 this morning, we are beginning the end of the book. Chapters 21 through chapter 24 form the conclusion to the book of 2 Samuel. And some might look at these chapters and and conclude that they are not related to the, the accounts included in 2 Samuel and question why are they here, but these are here purposefully. Our human author, under the guidance of the Spirit of God, has these chapters here to do this, to conclude the portrait of David. As, he, as we see David's life in the book of Samuel, we see some very important truths here in chapters 21 through 24 that complete this account, this picture of David's life. Remember that the Bible contains real accounts of real people living real life. And that's why it's so important for us, so encouraging for us, because we see people just like us. People that sometimes experience victory, and sometimes we fail. Remember, one of the unifying truths to the books of Samuel is this question, who is eligible to sit on the throne of God? Who can be Israel's king? We saw the Israel's first king, Saul, and he definitely was not eligible. Saul depended on himself, not the Lord. He was in it for him, not for God. He did what he wanted to do, not what the Lord wanted him to do. And then we saw King David. King David was not a perfect king. He still sinned. In fact, suffered for it in the book of 2 Samuel. But the neat thing about David's life that's such an encouragement to us is even though he failed, he confessed his sin and started walking with the Lord again. And even though the Lord withdraws his blessing from those who sin against him, when God's people humble themselves and confess their sin, the Lord will bless them again and enrich their lives and give them joy and use them as his tools in his kingdom. I'm going to read this chapter, chapter 21. You can follow along with me in your copy of the Word and look for one man who sins that causes God to withdraw his blessing and then another man who makes it right and restores God's blessing on Israel. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David sought the presence of the Lord. And the Lord said, It is for Saul and his bloody house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the sons of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites, and the sons of Israel made a covenant with them. But Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the sons of Israel and Judah. Thus David said to the Gibeonites, What should I do for you? How can I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? Then the Gibeonites said to him, 
We have no concern of silver or gold with Saul or his house, nor is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. He said, I'll do for you whatever you say. So they said to the king, The man who consumed us and who planned to exterminate us from remaining within any border of Israel, let seven men from his sons be given to us, and we'll hang them before the Lord and give you of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the oath of the Lord, which was between them, between David and Saul's son, Jonathan. So the king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, Ermoni and Mephibosheth, whom she had borne to Saul, and the five sons of Merah, the daughter of Saul, whom she had borne to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the, the Mahalathite. Then he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them in the mountain before the Lord, so that the seven of them fell together, and they were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of barley harvest. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until it rained on them from the sky. And she allowed neither the birds of the sky to rest on them, nor the beasts of the field by night. When it was told David what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done, then David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan his son from the men of Jabesh Gilead, who'd stolen them from the open square of Bashan, where the Philistines hanged them on that day. The Philistines struck down Saul and Goboa. He brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan his son from there, and they gathered the bones of those who had hanged. They buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan the son in the country of Benjamin and Zela in the grave of Kish his father. Thus they did it all, they did all that the king commanded, and after that God was moved by the prayer for the land. Now, when the Philistines were at war again with Israel, David went down and his servants with him. And as they fought against the Philistines, David became weary. Then Ishbi Benob, who was among the descendants of the giant, the weight of whose spear was 300 shekels of bronze in weight and was girded with a new sword, and he intended to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, helped him and struck the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall not go out again with us to battle so that you do not extinguish the lamp of Israel. Now it came about after this that there was war again in the Philistines at Gob. Then Sebekai, the Hushathite, struck down Saph, who was among the descendants of the giant. There was war with the Philistines again at Gob, and Elkanon, the son of Jair or Agim, the Bethlehemite, killed Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. There was war at Gath again when there was a man of great stature who had six fingers in each hand and six toes in each foot, 24 in number, and he also had been born to the giant. When he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shammai, David's brother, struck him down. These four were born to the giant in Goth, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. We find in 2 Samuel chapter 21, a man, Saul, who violates God's will, thus causing guilt for the whole nation of Israel. And then we find a man, David, who's in the humbleness of his heart, seeks after the Lord. 
makes amendment and amends the sin, and God blesses them once again. You see, when God's people choose to reject his revealed will, to sin, God removes his blessing from them. You and I most likely go through periods of time where we start to ask ourselves the question, why why don't I have joy in my life right now? Or why do I feel so empty inside, so dry? Or why do I feel like my prayer is just bouncing off the walls? Sometimes it's a result simply of fatigue, that we go through periods of time kind of like Elijah did in 1 Kings 19, when we just simply need some rest and some nourishment, and God in His grace gives us opportunity to uh, once again experience joy. And it's just physical fatigue. Sometimes we're going through a deep, long, hard tunnel in our lives, and we're we're going against issues and pain that just saps us of our energy, and that's why we feel dry inside. But sometimes we are not experiencing joy, and we're not experiencing peace in our lives because we are not depending on the Lord. We're doing things in our own strength. We're saying, well, it's okay if I just have these little sins in my life. It's not that big of a deal. And in our self-dependence and our acceptance of sin in our lives, we cut off God's ability to give us that joy, to replicate the life of Christ in and through us by His Holy Spirit. And just as we see in this chapter... God will bring blessing again. We can have joy again, but we've got to start seeking the Lord. When I was a kid, um, one set of my grandparents lived in Fort Collins, Colorado, and that particular set of grandparents gave us this game that we played for hours that I don't even remember the name. This was like in 1967. It had a, it had a, a heavy rubber base with an elastic band connected to a rubber ball and two wooden mallets. And we would take it out into the driveway and hit that ball as hard as we could. And that ball would fling out away from us and then it would fling straight back at us and you have to try to hit it again. It was great fun. Sometimes we live our lives that way. We start thinking, if I just go with this harder, if I just hit it harder, then I can make everything fit and everything work together. But the problem is, everything comes rushing back at us, including our prayer. Because in our self-dependence, in doing things our way and not God's way, not seeking Him and depending Him, we end up dry inside and no joy. And we stifle His ability to work in and through us. Well, as we come this morning to chapter 21, 
we find a man, King Saul, who has willfully and knowingly disobeyed the revealed will of God. Saul has killed some Gibeonites. So we come to verse 1. It tells us there's been a famine in Israel for three years, three years straight. No crops. It just can't make them come out of nowhere. Probably no rain or there's been insects, whatever it is. Famine for three years. David comes before the Lord and says to the Lord, we need you. Now, why is there famine? Well, the text tells us as David comes before the Lord, the Lord tells him the answer to that question. It's because of Saul. Saul's dead now, but Saul disobeyed God. Well, why would one man's sin cause God to discipline an entire nation? Well, this is a little different than what happens today. Here in the book of Samuel, Saul is God's co-regent. Remember, Israel really only has one king. That's God himself. But God chooses a representative, one that will represent him on the throne. It is his co-regent. Saul represents God. But when Saul sins, since Saul is reigning over a nation, the entire nation becomes culpable, becomes guilty of that sin. And so three years have gone by with God's hand of discipline on Israel. Now, what is the deal with these Gibeonites? It says here in verse 1, The Lord said, it is for Saul and his bloody house because he put the Gibeonites to death. In order to understand that, we would have to go to the book of Joshua in the Old Testament, chapter 9. Remember, Moses was to take the people of Israel into the land of promise, a place where they would have life abundant. Moses, because of his sin, was not allowed to take the people into Israel, but the man Joshua was. And as Joshua came into the land, God told them, wipe out the godless local inhabitants of the land. And Joshua started doing that. Well, there's some people from the area of Gibeah that became scared. All of our neighbors are getting wiped out. We've got to protect ourselves. So what they did is they put on really old clothes and old crusty bread and rotten food, put that in their packs to make it look like they had come from a distant country. And they approached Joshua and said, we've come from a long ways away, even though they were neighbors. We've come from a long ways away. Will you make a covenant with us that you'll guarantee our safety and we will be your servants? Well, if you go to Joshua 9, it tells us that at that point, Israel did not seek the Lord's wisdom in the decision. They didn't consult with the Lord. They just said, sure, we'll make a covenant with you. And they swore by the Lord that they would protect them. God is their witness. 
their word is based on the very character of God himself. Then Israel finds out, we have been duped. These guys aren't from a faraway country, they're locals. They're just trying to protect themselves. And some within Israel said, let's kill them. But Joshua said, no, we made an oath. We made a covenant before the Lord that we will protect them. And Israel honored it until Saul came. In fact, verse 6 tells us Saul's plan was to totally exterminate the Gibeonites. He wanted only the best for Israel and Judah. These people are taking our food. Let's wipe them out. Well, one man's sin by killing some of the Gibeonites caused God's discipline to come upon a nation. Thus, in order to restore God's blessing, David knows that they have to have a national attempt at making things right. David now is God's representative. He is now on the throne. And he tells the Lord. He, in verse 1, seeks the presence of the Lord, literally the face of the Lord. He goes to the Lord and says, we need you. We're hurting. We we desperately need direction from you. What is wrong? What can we do to restore your blessing upon us as a nation? And the Lord said, it's Saul. It's his blood. So David goes to the Gibeonites and says to them in verse 3, How can I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? How can I make amends so that once again you will bless the Lord's people? You will call upon God's goodness for them. And they said, hey, we're not interested in money. We don't have the authority to kill anybody, but we do ask for this. We ask that... You provide seven of Saul's descendants so that they may die for Saul killing us. The request is really parallel with Old Testament truth in Exodus 21, where in the Old Testament law said, if you take an eye, you have to give an eye. If you take a tooth, you have to give a tooth. If you take a life, you have to give a life. And David says, we will do it. So he takes two of Saul's sons, born to a concubine named Rizpah, and five of Saul's grandsons, hands them over to the Gibeonites, and the Gibeonites go ahead and take their lives. Notice that in verse 6 and in verse 9, it tells us they did this before the Lord. In other words, the Lord saw this as making amends for Saul breaking the covenant. Remember, it's the Lord's name that's at stake. Israel had said, before the Lord we will protect you. So verse 6 says, that let seven men from his sons be given to us. We will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah. Verse 9 says, then he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites. They hang them in the mountain before the Lord. Notice verse 14. After these men had died as a payment for the sin of Saul, it tells us, after that, God was moved by the prayer for the land. You see, one man's sin caused the blessing of the Lord to be removed. 
Another man made it right. Underneath this passage, it's important for us to remember Deuteronomy chapter 28 through 30. In Deuteronomy 28 through 30, God had said to his covenant people, these people, Israel, with whom he had made a, an agreement that said, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will bless you if you'll obey me. If you obey me, you'll have great crops, you'll have many children, and you'll have peace in the land. But if you disobey me, you're going to have terrible crops, you won't have children, and I'm going to bring a foreign invader in to take you captive. That's the basis of what's happening here in chapter 21. Israel has sinned because the head of Israel sinned. So God is withdrawing his physical blessing, the rain from them. Deuteronomy chapter 28 through 30 is capsulized in two verses in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 verses 13 and 14. Sometimes believers uh, quote these today. In verse 13, it says, If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Those are verses that God specifically promised to Israel, that he would give them physical blessing. In other words, if you obey me, your company is going to go great. If you obey me, you're going to have a phenomenal year in agriculture. Your bottom line is going to be great. God promised Israel physical, material blessing as a result of obedience. He does not make that same promise to us as Christians. We are not told in the New Testament that if we are obedient that we will have peace in our lives, and that we will have our businesses materially blessed. We are promised that if we obey him, we will have every spiritual blessing that's already been bestowed on us that we will enjoy in our everyday lives, that we will have waters of living living water flowing up through us with joy as the Spirit of God replicates the life of Christ in each of our lives. Here... Israel has sinned against God because their head, Saul, sinned against God. David, in response, in the humbleness of his heart, goes to the Lord and says to the Lord, we need you. I don't know how to fix this. We don't know what's wrong. But we come before you. I'm seeking your presence. I'm seeking your face to tell you that we desperately need you. We need you to help us. Quite a few of us in this room have college-age children or grandchildren. Some of you, it may be the first child you have ever sent off to college. Some of you, you may have sent off your youngest to college for the very last time. And some of you, uh, uh, you are empty nesters for the first time. Some of us, were old hands at it. It's great. You know, when you send off your children to college, there's some changes that have to take place. And sometimes it's hard for us as parents to figure out those changes. Things like, how much should we talk with our kids? How, how much should we contact them? With one of our sons, I, Barbara and I said, well, let's just 
wait for them to contact us. Now, for some of you, you may have contact within the first hour. For some of us, like one of my sons, we could have gone three months and not heard a word. Another thing that we have to adjust to with college-age students is there's always the money discussion. I mean, at some point, the bank of dad is going to shut down completely. And there will be no more withdrawals from the bank of dad. But in college, they still need a little help once in a while. So you might get a phone call and say, hey, I'm dad, I'm just a speck short. Like one call I got from one of my sons and said, oh, I'm, I'm $400 short and it's the end of the semester. And I said, well, let's think back over the semester. Why are you $400 short? I thought you had all figured out. Well, I did buy a $400 television. Oh, so now dad needs to buy the television. You know, it's just a learning thing. So what if you have this college student and you said, I'm just going to wait for them to contact me and we'll just see what kind of communication we get. And a couple of months down the road, you get a text message that says, Dad, need money. Please transfer into my account. And then that's all you hear. And a couple of months, a couple of weeks later, Dad, need more money. Please transfer into my account. And then maybe you get a phone call. And say, oh, you're so excited that your child is finally going to call and visit. And say, oh, man, I'm really in tough shape. Can you just give me a little more money? We'd get pretty upset as parents, wouldn't we? We'd probably shut down the bank of Dad sooner. Because we start feeling like, well, do you really want a relationship with me or do you just want stuff? What a joy it is for a parent to have a child call and just say, hey, how are you? Well, thanks for asking. This is great. And just to be able to talk and commune and even to have your child say, hey, I, just so you know, I know I still need you. It's great. You know, sometimes we can fall into the trap of just kind of using God as a final backup. Oh, I've been doing great on my own, but I, I think I better get a little help from God. So we dial up God and say, hey, I need this. Send him a text message. Please transfer this into my account. That's not what David does here. David, in his pain, in the pain of a nation, doesn't come to God to get something. He comes to God for the presence of God. I love verse 1. It says, David sought, literally, the face of the Lord. He wanted to be with him. He wanted to spend time with him. He wanted to express to him, God, I need you. And I don't know what to do. You see... They're hurting because of sin. Just like sometimes when we go through those times in our lives where we're starting to feel empty or dry, it's important for us to to do a heart check. And maybe we're just fatigued. We've been working way too many hours at work. We've not been eating right. We haven't been getting exercise. We just need to get some rest. But sometimes... Maybe we've been growing more self-dependent than God-dependent. I want to read a sobering verse out of 1 Peter chapter 3 that illustrates how sin 
actually removes God's blessing from the life of the believer. First Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Men, as you read this, if you are married here today, this is a humbling, sobering verse. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she's a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Now that's a sobering verse. That says, if I am not treating my wife with grace, recognizing her and me as equals before the Lord and a need, equally in need of God's grace and recipients of God's grace, recognizing that the Lord loves her and that I am supposed to demonstrate the Lord's love through me to her. If I'm not treating her with grace, it says my prayers are going to be hindered. That's another way of saying the Lord's going to pull his blessing off of me. That's another way of saying that my sin in not showing love and respect to my wife will cause the Lord to pull his blessing from me until once again I confess my sin and then start seeking the presence of the Lord again in my life. Well, as we come to the end of the chapter in verses 15 through 22, we have an, another giant account. All of us know in 1 Samuel 17 what 1 Samuel 17 talks about. It's David and Goliath. It's one of the most famous Bible stories there is. But how many of us knew that there's four more giants? And uh, in fact, one of them is Goliath's brother, most likely, in verse 19. Four more. And as we look at verses 15 through 17, we see that God brings victory over four more giants. In fact, those who depend on the Lord can be assured of God bringing victory. Why are these verses here? Why are why is this account of four more giants being defeated? Why is it here? It's simply this. To remind us that God is with David. God is with us when we are walking in a way where we're depending on him. And then he can bless us and enrich us and give us joy in circumstances where we wouldn't normally have joy. That the Spirit of God is free to work in and through us, giving us victory. David goes up against a giant in verses 15 and 16 and 17. And and he's older here and about gets whooped, but one of his helpers comes along and, and helps slay the giant. Then in the verses 18 through 22, three more. There's even a giant here that's got six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. Yikes. By the way, if you're here today and, and you've got six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, I hope I haven't offended you. It's here in the text. But if you do, I'd really like to see it afterwards. Yuck, this gross giant coming after David and his men. Notice verse 22. These four were born to the giant in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. God brings victory to those who depend on him. This morning I want to read you an excerpt from a man who's been a part of Faith Bible Church's family for years and years and years. Uh, Phil Gorman. 
Some, many of you know Phil, some of you may not. But uh, Phil has had a hard path these last few years and has, uh, ha- was diagnosed with a debilitating disease that has really taken all of Phil's function from his limbs except a little bit in one hand. And he's had to retire from work. And he spends quite a bit of time by himself. His wife still works outside the home. And in Phil's blog, which I read regularly because it's such an encouragement to me in my heart, he had a post this week about people expressing concern for him having to be by himself, limited to life in a, in a chair. And this is what Phil wrote. One of the reasons I don't mind being alone is that when I was 25, I received Jesus Christ as my Savior, Lord and Companion. I can say I've never been alone since that day and seldom felt alone due to his divine and real presence. Phil is one of my heroes. Phil is slaying the giants. And he's not doing it in his own strength. He's doing it in the strength that he finds in Jesus Christ. Remember that One of the themes in this book is who is eligible to sit on the throne, on God's throne. Sure wasn't Saul. And David sat on the throne, but as you look at the Old Testament, it's clear that he's not it either. I mean, in the Psalms, even David himself wrote in Psalm 16 that there's a there's a holy one that's not going to have decay, that's not going to die. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, it says there's going to be one that sits on David's throne forever and ever, and he's going to be considered God's son. And we look at the whole Old Testament and we say, where is this king that's eligible to sit on the throne? But we come to Matthew chapter 1. And we see that there is, in chapter 1, verse 1, a son of David named Jesus. And in chapter 3, verse 17, as Jesus is baptized, God the Father speaks out of heaven and says, This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And we see that the books of Samuel ultimately are pointing to David's son, Jesus Christ. That in him... There's always victory. We're asking the question, how do I respond in the emptiness of the soul? In the times when I'm weak, in times when I feel like my prayers are bouncing against the wall and coming right back. The answer is, we do a heart check. Maybe we're just fatigued. I've experienced that. But sometimes we've started walking more dependent on myself than the Lord. And you may be here, and you don't know if you've ever been in right relationship with God. We've got some material back in our prayer room that I encourage you to stop by immediately after the service. One of our elders will give it to you, and you can take out a Bible of your own and look up verses that tell you how you can know for sure that your sin is forgiven and you are right with God so that he can bless you. You see, 
our blessing, the way Phil is able to slay the giants, comes in his seeking the face of the Lord. And his coming before the Lord. Even when we fail, we confess our sin and then we start seeking him again. Telling him how much we need him. Not just in little tweets or little text messages, I need something. But actually seeking his presence. Talking with him. Telling him how much we need him. Expressing our dependence on him. And then he is able to give us those spiritual blessings that encourage us. Help us face the day. Help us slay the giants. You see, God answers the prayers of those who seek him. Father, I thank you for these verses. I thank you for the hope that we find in the Son of David, the Anointed One, Jesus himself, and the fact that seven sons of Saul did not was not enough to fix our sin, but the death of one man who died on a tree displaying your mercy and grace. One man made it possible for the sin of the world to be covered. We praise you for Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.